before I start, I should mention that the names of the crew who worked on the movie have been either changed or omitted. That being said, in 2016, an up-and-coming film director started work on a film that he thought would get his name out there. He was already gaining steam with a number of projects he helped on, but he wanted something his name came first on. So he came up with a story and then began work on coming home. The story was to center around a man who was honorably discharged from active service and the struggles he endured reassimilating to civilian life. The director, who we will call Alan, wanted the film to be as authentic as possible. He knew the narrative beats had been done before, so he focused on making the film as genuine as he could. This also made the process a much more frugal endeavor. Alan scouted all over for the actors he would employ, and was elated when he found a man recently discharged from active service. The man, Marcus, was virtually unknown as well. Alan had the idea that anyone on camera should be someone who had never been on film before, that there was no chance of recognizing the actor and experiencing any disconnect. When it came to location scouting, Alan was incredibly specific with his choices. The most important piece was the apartment Marcus would live in. Alan stated it would need to be a character of its own. After about a week of looking around, Alan eventually stumbled on a dingy, back-alley set of apartments. It was the type of place where you were likely to find plywood doors and abandoned needles. The tenants ranged from coked-out couples to the elderly with no means of supporting themselves, and Alan felt it was perfect. It didn't hurt that Alan had to give the landlord a surprisingly little amount of money in order to film there. Judging by the state of things, the landlord didn't really care what happened in the building if it kept making him money. The filming was fairly uneventful, there were the expected hiccups, but nothing like unexplained injuries or spectral intervention occurred. No, in fact, everyone on board thought the shoot went better than planned. With the apartment, the idea was always that the walls were paper thin, and with Alan's search for realism, any noise picked up by the microphone was the ambience. During the shoot, Alan got plenty of that. Crying babies, arguing couples and the whir of vacuums, all inserting themselves into the film. Coming Home was wrapped, and the process of editing and vetting for a spot in film festivals began. Alan already had a small following, so grabbing a time slot in a few underground festivals wasn't too challenging. And with that, a month or so later, the film was screened. The audience's reception was a bit confusing at first glance. While the film deals with some dour themes, it's ultimately an uplifting experience. Yet, when approaching anyone who watched the film, they described experiencing a sorrow they couldn't quite put their finger on. Like a distant memory, you couldn't picture, but the feeling still lingered. This reaction was consistent through all of the movie screenings. 
Alan became troubled and watched the film over and over. It wasn't until a few weeks later that the pieces started to connect. It all started in the apartment. There was a couple in the apartment. They had been living there for a year or so and were raising a child together. They were, unfortunately, one of the tenants that were the cause of the discarded needles. I was with Alan as he read through the newspaper article. He would jitter between reading it and checking a scene in coming home. Alan was looking for realism. The reality he found affected everyone involved. The couple had been hiding their stash of drugs behind their vent, so all the screws were already loose. On the day of filming, they got so hopped up on whatever that they neglected to tighten the screws on the vent. The child crawled out of the playpen that it was far too large for and ventured over to the vent. The nice cool air was like a siren call in the 80-degree apartment. The child was just small enough to squeeze into the vent. The sweat on his body made navigating the large ventilation system easy. That is until all of it wiped off on the metal walls. After which the child had difficulty moving around until he got stuck. Unable to form proper words yet, and without a developed sense of reasoning, the child began to cry. The sound bounced off the vent's walls and through the apartment building. While the child did its best to struggle through, it continued to cry for help, pulling inch by inch through the vents. The child, full of panic and desperation, would pass away in the ventilation system of that building, while his parents were zombified in the other room. When the audience, editors, and Alan listened to coming home, they were hearing the final cries of that poor kid. I wish I could say that was the worst of it, that horrible situation. In the scene where the child can be heard crying, Alan tried to mimic a dolly-like camera swing to create some dramatic tension. As the camera swings by the characters, for just a moment you can catch a glimpse of the vent, the artificial light very briefly, maybe just two frames, catches the small glint of the child's eyes. The whole crew was just inches away, but due to the thin walls and the cries bouncing off the metal, the child sounded like it was in another apartment. I'm sure you've heard of film shoots that carried a curse with them, movies like The Crow or The Exorcist. Well, coming home has a similar weight, except it was a wave of mournful regret that ate away at the crew. The lead actor, Marcus. He was in contact with Alan for a while after the discovery. He said he couldn't stop dreaming about the cries, that it was all he could hear anymore. It's all his mind would focus on. A week after, he stopped making contact. He was found in his house, sprawled out on the floor, next to an empty pill bottle and a broken bottle of Jack. Other actors involved in the film just vanished. None of them seemed to want to make it as an actor after being part of coming home. The individual that was filming at the time, 
was said to have been admitted into a psychiatric ward. His family feared he'd end up like Marcus. Alan has the only copy of the film left, and all recorded footage of it has been scrubbed from the crevices of the internet. Now all Alan does is sit in his room and watch the scene on loop until he passes out. He is so hypnotically drawn into it that I can barely get him to eat or drink. I don't think he's coming back from whatever he's dealing with. I can't imagine what all this must have done to him. Since he's always playing the footage, I've had to get used to the noise bouncing through the vents on quiet nights. Some nights I hear Alan whispering back to the footage. I think it's driving me a bit mad, too. One night when he was whispering, I got up to go check on him, and when I opened the door, the room was dark. The laptop was off and Alan was laying still in bed, but I still heard the baby's cries. But they weren't coming from the room. I knew where they were coming from. I quickly left the room that night making damn sure not to look at the vent. Almost no one in all my time on this dismal ball of water and dirt has ever believed me. I've read your rules. You have to believe me here. I'm immortal. I cannot die. Well, I can, just not for long. This downhill spiral started a ridiculously long time ago. Think stone tools and the first manipulation of fire. That's how old I am, give or take. Not sure exactly where, but I believe that you now call the area of my first birth Africa. There were six of us. We were a small group of hunters. A scouting party, really. We were trying to find where all of the large animals went, as their numbers had become fewer recently. We smelled them before we saw them. The putrid stench of death and decay clung to the air, filling our noses and threatening to empty our stomachs. The sight was horrendous. The corpses of massive animals lay decimated, their guts strung from the trees. The entire area was covered in rotten meat and blood. I noticed that, besides from the devastation, it didn't seem like any parts of the animals were eaten. The wastefulness annoyed me. We could have survived for a month off all that meat. After we searched the area, we got ready to move out. Our exit was halted when an almighty roar tore through the air, sending a chill down my spine. It was like shadow given form, smoke condensed into a four-legged creature the size of a wolf. It was the most beautiful and horrifying thing I've ever seen. It paused, the air around it shimmered like heat on pavement, or the space over a fire. It had no discernible eyes, Yet I could feel it sizing us up, analyzing us, until at long last its focus rested on me. I didn't know what to do. I was terrified. Instead of being smart and running away, I charged. The creature sprinted towards me as well, moving many times faster than I ever could. I tried to kill it with a primitive weapon in my hands, a simple spear. No matter how well I aimed, I couldn't hit it. It was too fast. It shattered my spear with one swipe, the shaft cracking and breaking under the force. I didn't have time to react as it lunged, landing on top of me. 
I felt its claws cut into my skin. I remember the pain. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the rest of the group surround us. I felt it tense, ready to move. So I did the only thing that I could have done. I reached up and grabbed the beast, forcing it still. It kicked and struggled, tearing into me. I thought it would black out from the pain. I don't know how, but I managed to hold it still long enough for the rest of the hunting party to attack. A flurry of slashes and cuts rained down on the beast. One of the other members was a bit overzealous. He stabbed straight through it, ripping and tearing its way to me. If I wasn't sure moments ago, I was now. I was going to die, covered in the guts and dark blood of a monster. Its blood now dripping into my wounds, burned like fire. It spread through my veins until it was all I felt. Moments passed. They seemed like hours. The blood in my body poured out like crimson sand in an hourglass. Slowly, I died for the first time. Far away, a woman started to go into labor. It was no surprise she was pregnant for a while. After much effort, a newborn baby entered the world. She died giving birth, and I was born again. I lived with my group, Roman. Slowly I grew up, around the time I turned 13. Just estimating, there wasn't really a way to keep track. Everything changed. From what I saw in my reflection, whenever the lake was calm, I was a short, dark-haired, dark-eyed girl. I was staring at the lake when it happened. My head started to hurt, building in pain and intensity until it felt like a hatchet was driven through my skull. Slowly a burning sensation worked its way from my fingertips through the rest of my body. It was horrible, and somehow terribly familiar. Thoughts and images started pouring into my head. The beast, the hunters, who I used to be. I thought I was going to pass out. I emptied my stomach, falling to the ground. I curled into a ball, shaking and crying until at last, it was over. The pain went away, but the memories didn't. I couldn't unsee who I used to be. I tried to tell the others. They believed I was crazy. They didn't care about me since my father passed a few winters back. Rather than lug the crazy girl everywhere, they left. They left me there, all alone. I lasted a few days, but it was difficult to be alone back then. A shorter time later, I was born. A boy again. Around the age of 16, the same thing happened again, and I regained my memory. I was three people, and all of their memories inside me, their adolescence, their childhood all crammed together. I knew the reaction would be the same if I told everyone, so I kept it a secret. I acted like nothing was wrong. I lasted six more winters with them. I had a child, a mate, lived my life. Life expectancy was real short, even with the safety in numbers. You can probably guess what happens next. I was born, I remembered, I lived, I died on repeat, over and over again. Not much changed, really. Our tools became more efficient, 
small skirmishes turned into battles. I fought in a few, died in a few, and kept coming back. I grew to hate my existence, begging to be released. I've prayed to all of the gods and goddesses across all of the pantheons. No luck so far. I thought maybe I'd be noticed if I committed terrible deeds. I've seen the sun glint of 8,000 blades as soldiers march towards their death. God never answered me. I've strolled through the forest of the dead near Targoviste. 24,000 men murdered and impaled by a madman. Knowing that I helped cause this, it turned my stomach. I assisted in burning it all down. The smell of burning corpses is a terrible thing. That wasn't the first atrocity I committed, and certainly not the last. I was the last to drink the flavor aid in Guiana. I made sure the others died first. I've slaughtered men and women in the name of a god that I didn't fully believe existed. I wasn't always evil. I alternated between sinner and saint, trying to get the attention of... something. I was one of the engineers on the Titanic, trying to save the ship and its occupants. I've hunted some of the most monstrous men imaginable. It still wasn't enough. It hasn't been all bad. Someone believed me once. Instead of yelling and institutionalizing me, instead of doping me up and getting a pike shoved through my brain, someone believed me. Her name was Alice. We got married, had kids, and built a life. For 20 years I was happy. A workplace accident cost me my life and the cycle started again took around 15 years for me to remember. I ran off and traveled to my old house, hitchhiking from state to state. The place was almost exactly the same. Although the house had a fresher coat of paint, the swing I built in the backyard was broken, just tattered rope hanging from a tree branch. I saw an elderly woman watering the flowers in the windowsill. Her hair, once dark, was now silver her skin now covered in wrinkles and the scars of time. Still, I knew it was her. I wanted so badly to go to her. I almost did. But I knew that even though my wounds are still fresh, hers have healed. I didn't want to cause her pain by reopening them. I left her, once again. Three years later, she had a stroke. It didn't look good. I visited her in the hospital, saying I was an old friend. She was hooked up to machines, whirring and beeping away, indifferent to her pain. She was pale and thin, her body wearing out. I knew this was the last conversation we'd have. Hello, Alice, I said after clearing my throat. She almost jumped, startled to see me. Hello, she replied, her eyes drilling into mine. Uh, I've seen you before. You look... different, Jay. Her expression was unreadable. No one's ever recognized me before. How did you? Your eyes, Jay. They may not be blue anymore, but they're still just as focused. They still seem to look through me down to my soul. Her eyes started to water. No one's called me Jay in 18 years. I'm glad you remembered it. 
I felt the strange urge to cry. What else would I call you, Jay? With that ungodly long name of yours. She cracked a smile, but tears started falling. I never understood how people could cry and smile at the same time. The beeping of the machine started slowing. I remember your expression when I first told it to you. You looked horrified. I couldn't help but crack a smile. I thought I would have to take it when we got married. She started to laugh. The machine slowed further, almost to a crawl. For the first time in millions of years, I was scared. I told her as her heart slowed to a stop and the air left her body with a sigh. I was alone again. I held her as her heart slowed to a stop and the air left her body with a sigh. I was alone again. As nurses rushed into the room, I realized this pain I'm feeling, this misery, this sadness, it will all happen again and again. I knew that I needed to die. That sums up my story so far. It's been years since that day. I've been searching for a way to die without luck. But today I came to a realization. Every time I've died, I was reborn from a human. So if there were no humans to give birth, my soul would finally know peace. I don't care if I have to kill you all one by one, raising this planet along the way. I will salt your fields and slaughter your families. I know this might take a while. Doesn't make a difference to me, though. I have nothing but time.